Welcome to Finding Peace in Parenting, the podcast where we deep dive into common parenting concerns as mothers trying to raise happy little humans. I'm Rani. And I'm Tracy Ann. And today we will talk about sex, baby. Ooh. <laughs> we will cover topics like what age do we have the talk with our kids? How do we discourage our teenagers from behaving too sexually without making sex shameful? What do we do if our children catch us in the act? And how do we talk to our kids about porn? Rani, what do you remember about having the talk when you were a child? Oh God, one word, non-existence, Tracy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness, I remember actually, you know, hearing this naughty, taboo F word from one of the friends in the playground when I was at primary and then came back home having family dinner with parents, with other family members asking, so mom and dad, what does this F word mean? You know what they did? They just sent me, okay, that's it. You're having a time out. That is a bad word. And I was left confused, like feeling, oh God, I must have done something wrong. I felt dirty. I felt like... It's like a shutdown. Yeah, absolutely. Sinful. I felt sinful. Yeah, so that was how it was. And I think it still pretty much exists in the community where I come from, where religion is teaching us you can't have sex before marriage therefore even to the extreme i think some religion or or culture believe that uh, not only boys have to go through circumcision but also girls have to be circumcised just to prevent them being too sexually active as they are growing up so that's really a taboo conversation to have and it's just so diverse to how i grew up although similar in scenarios of it being taboo about Mm. not i mean my sex education talk was fairly non-existent it was sort of a diagram of periods and where they came from and basically don't have sex Mm. (laughs) it's just the (laughs) easiest way not to fall pregnant was not to have sex easiest explanation (laughs) yeah and also my daughter had the question my husband and I were driving yeah share me how is it going so it just came out of the blue like we were talking about you know horse riding or something (laughs) and then my daughter says so how does the fish get to the egg yeah and because we'd had the conversation about the fish and the egg and, yeah. I, and but she really she's like I know about the fish and the egg but how does it get there yeah and I looked at my husband and he looked at me like you <laughs> take it away <laughs> and so she was in the back seat and I said well so okay be factual here so well the penis goes into the vagina and the fish comes out of the penis and swims to the egg and I was expecting this sort of another followed up by another question. She yeah. said, what are we having for dinner? Oh. <laughs> and that was that. Oh, that was, that's you hilarious. know, the first sex talk with my oh nine-year-old my daughter. God. Well, Tracy Ann, clearly we are not the experts. So to help us today, we are being joined by a sex education expert, Kath Hackinson. Hi, Kath. Hi. Kath is a qualified sexual health nurse, author, speaker, and the founder of Sex at Rescue. She has over 25 years of experience and loves helping parents talk to their kids about sex so that kids can talk to their parents about anything. Welcome, Kath. Thank you. Kath, 
Why is it we struggle so much with knowing how to talk to our kids about sex? Are we all just prudes? Oh, sex is just one of those topics that our own parents weren't comfortable with. What I've found with that is that the parents that are comfortable talking about it with their kids had parents who talked to them. Now, that's probably about one in 200, maybe one in 300 parents, depending on where you live in the world. They grew up with open and honest conversations themselves. But for most of us, parents didn't talk to us. And by not talking, that gives us a message that it's something we don't talk about. So it's that unspoken message. Or we're given negative messages like, you walk out of the house like that, you look like a slut, you know, you're asking for it. Um, So negative stuff as well. So I think it makes nowadays for parents to talk about sex to our own kids, we've got all this baggage that we have to deal with and get past. Yeah, Yeah. and I think also depending on uh, the background of the value, belief, culture, and social norms that people Mm. have, right? Definitely. So, Kat, we know we need to talk to our children about sex before puberty and when they're sexually active, but at what age are children ready to hear all the gory details? And what are all the gory details? (laughs) and that's the thing because I sit here with my sex educator hat on and for me sex education is conversations that start from when they're a baby and they grab their penis and you go yep that's a penis or and you distract them or let them play and for a lot of parents they think that sex education is the talk that happens as they hit puberty because that's when most parents think about it and for most parents it's about explaining sex to their kids and that's probably the gory details and that's what I find most parents struggle with is explaining sexual intercourse to kids in a way that makes sense but doesn't give them permission to go out and tell everyone but also to start practicing with their friends as well. So usually if we're looking at when to talk about sexual intercourse, the best age to start is when kids are curious and it's when they're four, five, six, seven and they're curious about pregnancy. As parents ourselves, we've probably all had a kid who is breastfeeding a baby doll, is sticking stuff down their shirt, pretending they're pregnant like a mum, asking if, you know, if they can have a baby with you, if you, you know, if they can marry you one day when they're grown up. So that's a great opportunity to start talking about where babies come from. But as parents, and this is something that I find, I seem to attract parents who struggle, which is great. I find that you don't have to go straight into sexual intercourse. There's other questions you can answer first, like where where do babies come from? I remember when my daughter asked that question when she was five and it was like, oh, my God, what have I, you know, what have, I've got to talk about this. So what I went do into I this, say? Yeah, what do I say? I went into this big description and then she turned around to me and she looked at me and said, no, where was I born? Was I born in Perth? And she was born in Calgary's. <laughs> There's just so much expectation, isn't there, Kath? I think we have this urgency just to get it over and done with. Yeah. yeah. But like you said, it's a slow burn. Yeah. And what we can do is if kids ask questions, you know, instead of digging ourselves a hole like I often do, is we can turn around and say, well, what do you mean? 
find out what exactly they're asking. And half the time, they already know the answer or they've already worked it out. And then you can work out what they want to know and find out what they already know and then fill in the gaps. And it's much easier for us as a parent. Yeah. That's a brilliant idea. So usually that age of five, six, we can start off by talking about where babies come from. Babies come from inside the mummy's tummy or inside the uterus or the womb. There's a heap of research from the 60s that broke it down into the stages of the way kids think conceptually. And then we can talk about it takes apart from a man and apart from a woman or apart from a mummy or a daddy. Gets more interesting when you've got same-sex parents or a transgender parent, but there's language you can use to be more inclusive. And then we talk about that part being a sperm and an egg. And then we talk about the sperm comes out through the penis and the egg comes out, is in the vagina. And then eventually kids think, well, hang on, how does that sperm get to that egg? How does it get from the penis into the vagina? And that's sort of the last stage. And that's when we then talk about, you know, the what I used to, my language now is very much based around consent. And this is thanks to a friend in Melbourne. She says, it's not about the man places a penis in the vagina. It's the person with the vagina or the woman lets the man place their penis in there. So mm. starting to plant those seeds that it's about consent and that people do this because they want to. And then as they get older, we then start to let them know that because then kids sit there at the dinner table and they go, so you and dad had sex twice because, you know, there's their <laughs> brother. And then they what then do realize, you say? Yeah, well, the time my daughter asked that, I remember I was totally flummoxed. I couldn't respond at all. And, and I'm an expert. You know, I talk, I'm a sex therapist. I talk to people about what they do in their own bedroom in detail. And my husband dryly turns around at the other end of the table and says, no, we've done it more than twice. You know, we have sex for fun. <laughs> and so <laughs> he was really quick, but I, the yeah. expert, was yeah. floored. And that's the thing <laughs> about this is that certain topics can floor us. Other things we can talk about easy. But then we start talking about the fact that adults have sex for different reasons. We do it because we love each other. We do it for fun. We might do it for a job can talk yeah. about yeah so it's then about letting kids know the other reasons for it all okay in other words the explanation to our children not only coming from biological explanation but also from relationship a psychological point of view as well right yes so definitely. it's it's not really desensitizing the concept of sex itself as they grow older yeah and all the research says when they've looked at teenagers about what do they want from their parents they don't want the mechanics they want the feelings they want to know about the heartbreak the relationships how do you make that first decision and they listen more to parents than they listen to their teachers the leader of their church their peers and even, you know, Google and sex education, the TV show, they want to hear from parents first and the parents are the ones they trust. Mm, I see. They really want to hear about our experiences as well. It's why yeah. it's just so important to share as parents what we went through at similar ages. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So my next question, Kath, what age are kids generally having sex in Australia? 
Is there much data on this? We are very lucky in Australia that somehow this money has been quarantined and thrown at La Trobe University. And they do research every couple of years on high school students and they ask them questions about sexuality and relationships. So what they're finding is that kids are sexually active and having sex. So they're having, you know, intercourse usually at about that 15, 16, 17 age. A lot of research for a while has been suggesting that oral sex happens earlier. So kids, you know, we often joke in my field that oral sex is the new first kiss, that a lot of kids are having oral sex with their first kiss. Wow. Um, wow. And this has, yeah, scary. Yeah. Because as a mother of a 15-year-old myself, yeah. and we have to look at the act of porn on expectations that kids are having nowadays about sex as well. So there is quite a lot of research that does suggest that, probably about that age. Mm. And as a parent of a teenager, mine is 15 this year, I my conversations are definitely starting to become more about how you can prevent pregnancy, the risks of unprotected sex, but also about decisions about knowing whether you like someone and lots of conversations about peer group pressure mm. because yeah. that's what most sex is. It's because everyone else is talking about it. And lots of conversations with my daughter hitting high school, we've had so many fascinating conversations about the way kids swear, the language they use, the sexual conversations they have, and my daughter will repeat them to me and I'll go, but that doesn't actually work that way. How can that happen? And then we talk about how teenagers will talk about stuff because they feel that they have to so that they look more grown up and want to fit in. Okay. Mm. So this exposure of, of sex, like them having sex at early age, like 15, is it because puberty happening earlier for our kids in Australia? There's a little bit of research that does suggest that puberty is happening at a much younger age. Oh, probably 10 years ago, there was lots of talk about hormone supplements in chicken and meat and stuff and shampoo. That sort of stuff has all sort of been um, sorted out. But what we have noticed is that we still get what you call precocious puberty. Like I had a parent the other day, a six-year-old who was starting to develop breasts and wow. body odour and stuff. But what I find that parents tend to talk about now is it's more the social emotional stuff that they're com commenting about earlier so girls are starting to get more clicky with their friendship circles at school and that starts in um, the age of eight or nine instead of 10 or 11 sometimes even earlier and boys as well are starting to get involved in that as well and also perhaps you know it's what they're exposed to from what they're watching on television or shopping up on their screens and so they're yeah. just saturated with, with what they're viewing, essentially, and then that's affecting their relationships in turn. Would you think that that's true, Kat? And no guidance from home, mm, right? Totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the thing. And a big part of sex education, and luckily they do cover this in a lot of schools, is media literacy. So you see a toy ad on the TV, a commercial for a toy, and you look at it and you go, wow, do you reckon that toy can really fly in the air? Mm. Or do you think you have to hold it up? So these are conversations that help with sex education because we're helping our kids to look at stuff and go, that's not real. That's made up. That's there for entertainment. Mm. That's there to make money. So kids are sexualized because, you know, you have, I live in the inner city. I have buses go past with 
images of women in lingerie. Mm. I've got a sex shop four houses away. We have sex workers two streets away in the inner city. So my kids are exposed to sexualized stuff. And that's not even turning on the radio. The number of times you turn on the commercial radio and they're talking about sexual activity or the music, absolutely. The lyrics, right? Kathy's talking about sex education in schools. So what do they cover specifically and where do parents need to step it up? We're very lucky in Australia. We've got a fantastic curriculum and our curriculum is probably, if you looked at what's happening in the world, our curriculum is up there with the leaders. Our problem in Australia, though, is the curriculum is fantastic, but we don't have a national curriculum. Mm. So there's no sort of overriding body in Australia that says you have to talk about all this stuff. Each state does it differently. Victoria is fantastic because they've written it in in such a way that it actually has to happen. And I've got friends that are busy in Melbourne and also New South Wales as well is written in a little bit better. And they're busy running around doing sex education in schools. Other states like where I am, which is Western Australia and even South Australia and Queensland, the curriculum's not written as tight. So it's open to interpretation. So for my the school my kids went to, some of my friends, their kids had the puberty talk and they actually talked about puberty and talked about the changes and periods and sexual feelings. The school that my kids went to, all they did was tell them that they were growing up and they'd be going to high school next year. Mm. Absolutely different. Interpretation. But my kids go to a school that's very multicultural with a lot of migrants. So they take a much more conservative approach. With the curriculum, it covers basically everything, but it's not enough as parents. As parents, we still do need to be talking. Kids will get enough to be able to know what the name of their body parts are. They might get enough to know what sexual abuse is so that if there's inappropriate touch, they might know to report it or disclose it. And then they might they, they will understand how a pregnancy happens and how to prevent it. But they're not going to learn a lot about consent. They're not going to learn a lot about when do you know when you're ready? And they're not going to get the values Teachers and schools can't teach values. So as parents, that's where we need to step in and guide. Yeah. So true. Yeah. yeah. I know that at my son's school, yeah. um, you know, I, I found a condom in my son's room and yeah. I was like, so, and he's like, mum, you need to calm down. It was sex ed at school. We had to put them on bananas. It was really embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> so I was yeah. like, on bananas? I don't remember doing that at school. Yeah. So I yeah. think it's definitely changed It's, it's evolving, which is fantastic. And the topic that they need to be educated needs to be broad as well, like sexual abuse mm. and then um, yes. relationship education and then boundaries and consent as well, right, Kat? Definitely. Kat, I'm interested to know how do we talk the line between not wanting our teenagers to rush into sexual relationship or start dressing too sexually too young but not making sex shameful? It's many conversations and this is the thing. When we grew up, we got a talk at puberty because our parents suddenly realised that we are going to start having periods or getting erections and making sperm. So it was like, oh, we need to have the talk and tell them, you know, 
what it all means. So most of us grew up thinking that's what sex ed is about, but it's about many conversations. And the joy of many conversations is it doesn't matter if you forget to say something. Doesn't You don't have to get it right because you can keep revisiting stuff. So repeating conversations is really important. Mm-hmm. So how do we have these conversations? It's many conversations and as kids get older, we need to talk about stuff. So you might walk into a shopping centre and you might need to buy T-shirts and you look at them and one might say, I'm a sexy little thing or or daddy's tart or something. Mm. And you look at that and you might, or it might be cropped short and you might look at that and go, oh, what do you think of this shirt? And then you might say, well, this is what I think of this shirt. I think, you know, maybe if you're 18, that's fine, yeah. but I don't think a six-year-old needs to wear that. Yeah. And then as they get older, it's things like, turning the commercial radio on in the car. I used to only ever listen to um, taped music in the car. And then as my kids got older, I then started being braver and turning it over onto commercial radio where you turn it on and they're talking about and listening to the lyrics of music where you go, hang on, are they talking about going down and five guys having sex with one woman at the beach? Yeah, implicitly. Yeah, they do it implicitly, yes. Yeah. And then it's like, do you think she, are they asking her or do you think they're just going to force her down there? So having conversations yeah. and watching TV shows. I one summer school holidays watched Gilmore Girls with my teenager and we had so many conversations about sex and relationships. So as kids get older, we've got to sort of become braver as parents and start slowly allowing our kids to have more and more exposure to sexualized content and what we do is we don't just sort of let them go out there and watch mm. it but we watch it with them and we Conversation. have conversations about yeah. it. and I remember myself as a parent of a teen slowly going into this was like you know should I let my daughter watch this movie or not and then I was like hang on this is a great opportunity to talk and because we're there making sense of it we're helping them understand it so if they've got any questions it's so true it helps with mm, understanding correct and this is the only way really because children nowadays are so overly sexualized in yes. the media so we yes. can't feel awkward about it anymore we have to deal with it well this is good for us essentially yeah. not just yeah. our children absolutely so yeah. Kat, should our discussion around sex be the same for boys and girls like how should it differ definitely the same mm. The conversations I have are very similar. I have slightly different ones because, you know, with my son I talk more about penises and erections <laughs> and what's he going to do with wet dreams and stuff. Mm. So as they go through puberty and, you know, the conversations I have with my son about periods are very different to what I have with my daughter. So they sort of need to know the same stuff but then the conversations do have to be targeted also to their gender as well. Consent is going to be the interesting one. I think my conversations about consent are going to be very different because girls are often victims and boys are often perpetrators. But girls can also be perpetrators as well. Um, You hear many stories of girls forcing boys into sexual stuff as well. Mm. So the consent conversations I think are going to be in more detail with my son, but that could also be some kids are more followers 
than others. Mm. My daughter's very opinionated and she's not a follower, whereas my son is more of a follower. I've got a nursing background and I've actually worked in prisons. Mm. And the one thing I noticed about working in the prison system was that half of them had done stuff that they knew was wrong. Mm. And the other half had done stuff accidentally without thinking of the consequences and ended up in prison because of that. Mm. So they don't know the boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. Or they're just not aware of the consequences. Yeah. There's so many um, sexual consent cases up where someone will go into a bedroom with them and change their mind, but they're not able to vocalize it in such a way that sex still happens. And then six months later, there's a court case. There's a lot of that happening. And as a mother of a boy, I don't want my daughter to be a victim, but I also don't want my son to be a perpetrator. I don't want him to be the one with the charges. So I think, yeah, our conversations about consent probably are a little different when we're looking at the different genders. Yeah. So let's explore this then because consent, sexual consent is a really important topic, Kath. What is the updated, like the current sexual content legal framework that we need to explain to our children? Oh, it depends on where you're living. Uh, The law of consent, like there's guys who at the age of 17 had sex with someone who was 14 Mm. and they're actually up on, they're on the child sex offender list. It has to do with the age difference. If the younger child is usually over 14, if they're up 14 and under, it's seen more seriously and government bodies get more involved. When they get to that 15, 16, it very much depends. I've heard some horror stories. I know someone whose daughter's first sexual experience was at 15 and she went to the guy's house. He videotaped it without her consent Mm. and uploaded it to a port afterwards. They went to the Police and the police said that he could, they could do nothing about it unless the 15-year-old was prepared to lay the charges. Okay. It didn't matter that she was under 16 and she was under the legal age. But I've got a friend who works with sexual abuse and she says that if she'd run rung, um, e-safety commission, they would have been able to do something. So there's lots of mm. different stories about what you can and can't and depending on where you are and who you talk okay. to. But, um, yeah. But you, people do need to be careful because if my son takes a picture of his genitals yeah. and sends it to someone and they share it, that's distributing child pornography. Yes, oh, that's wow. right. Okay. Yeah. What about like they are actually having a sexual relationship is under influence of alcohol, unconscious, yeah. Yes, and you can't. It's like an informed, I guess I've got a public health background and I used to work with the immunisation and I very much break it down into the fact that consent has to be informed and you can't consent to an operation if you're drunk mm. or under mm. the influence of yeah. drugs because you're just not capable of making that decision. So conversations, the consent conversations have to happen around alcohol. So if you're at a party and everyone's drinking and there's a a girl, and I'm probably making some gendered assumptions here, but this is what usually happens is, and one of the girls is really drunk and she can't stand up. And then her boyfriend says, hey, let's take her out the back and have sex. And you guys can all join in and have sex after. There's, and you're, you're standing, 
standing there. Do you actually go in because everyone else is? And if you don't, they're going to turn around you and look at you and go, well, what's wrong with you? You know, why aren't you joining in? You know, you're not one of the boys. You're, you know, you're a wuss. You're a girl. This sort of peer group stuff kicks in and kids really struggle. And I think as parents, we have to think back to what was it like for us as a teenager growing up? How would we respond in a situation? So the consent conversations are many, but the thing is, is we're talking about sexual consent now. I started consent conversations with my kids when they were little. What shirt do you want to wear today? The red shirt or the mm. green shirt? Do you want Vegemite on your toast or jam? So we can start these conversations really young. So they can make a proper decision when they're older. Yeah. And then consent becomes a part of their everyday lives so that as they get older and are becoming more sexual, we can then start talking about sexual consent. But they've already got the foundations. They already know that that they're the boss of their body and no one else can touch it unless they want them to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really mm-hmm. useful insight. Well, time have changed since we were kids, especially in the terms of being more educated in LGBTQIA diversity. First of all, LGBTQIA. Do you know that? No, I'm can, ready can for you break it down for us, Kat? It's a very long acronym. <laughs> it changes all the time. So in Australia, this is what we say it is, but other places say it differently. So lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, and asexual. Oh, okay. So how should us parents talk to our children about sexual diversity, gender identities, and inclusion, Yeah, this is a conversation that, again, starts very young. And one of my mantras that I often say to my kids is that everyone is different and that's okay. And it doesn't have to be conversations about sexual and gender diversity it can be conversations about diversity in general. So skin colour, hair colour, a kid might be in a wheelchair. If we can have conversations with a young age with our kids about the fact that everyone's different, it then makes it easier when we get into gender and that. So we're very lucky now that there's a lot, and I've got book lists on my website and the book lists are they're huge. There's books coming out all the time about everyone's different and that's okay, about diversity. And there's lots of really good books coming out now about gender identity. Because when my kids were little, so my kids now are 11 and 15. So 15 years ago, when I had my daughter, I I would say to her, yep, girls have vaginas and boys have penises. Well, That's still true, but now I say it a little bit differently. I say most girls have a vagina, but some will have a penis, and most boys have a penis, but some boys will have a vulva or a vagina. And now I don't talk about male, I talk about male and female, so I talk about biological sex. And I also talk about gender. So it's a little bit more complicated nowadays because a trans man, someone who still has a vagina and a uterus but identifies as a male and dresses as a male, can be pregnant. So we once used to say to our kids, only women can have babies. That's not true anymore. Men can have babies as well. So all our language is changing. And look, as an educator myself, I constantly get the jargon wrong and I'm having to myself keep changing my language as well. 
parents struggle. So the best way to start having these conversations about sexual diversity and gender identity is when kids are younger and there's heaps of books about it. There's some fantastic books that explain transgender because some kids are realising at the age of three or four that even though they were born with a penis, that they don't feel like a boy. So what we do as parents is when we have a baby, we assume, we make the assumption that if they've got a penis, they're going to grow up wanting to be a boy, but we need to keep it in the back of our mind that that may not happen, that they may realise that they're a girl or they might realise that they're a boy one week and a girl the other week, or some are what we call non-binary and they don't identify as a boy or a girl. And it gets a little confusing, but there's some really simple kids' books that break it down. And it's almost like learning a new language. I have a transgender nephew and I really struggled myself with changing my language. And it's about getting used to it. It's about trying to just incorporate something new. And being respectful of their choice. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But this is not something that they discuss in school at this stage, do they, Kat, with the sex education they're starting to. In the primary schools, I'd say not. But do you remember the Safer Schools program that had that big furore about because they thought that there was a Christian group that was lobbying against it? And they were very concerned because they felt that the Safer Schools people were going in and sexualising children and encouraging them Mm. to be trans. So the Safer Schools program was funded because what they realised is that if you've got a child who doesn't identify as being, you know, a boy with a penis, a girl with a vulva, if your kid doesn't identify as that, they're more likely to suicide and they're more likely to have a really traumatic adolescence and self-harm and stuff. So this is why we need to have these conversations because it might not be your kid, but it could be your niece or nephew or your na- or your child's friend. And I think as parents, we want our kids to grow up to be nice kids. And I, I definitely don't want my kids to be bigoted and to exclude people because they're a little bit different. So we need to have these conversations and definitely make sure that kids are inclusive, but also be mindful that it is new territory. And I struggle myself as an expert in the area with the changes that are happening. And they're happening rapidly. It's crazy how fast the changes in our language is happening. So fast, yeah. So uh, we have a very interesting question actually being sent to us via email from one of our listeners. So (laughs) the question is, what should parents do if we are caught in the act ourselves? <laughs> I get asked that question so much that I actually have a blog post on it. That's what I want to do. And it's ironic, I have a YouTube channel and I have a video on YouTube and it has so many views and you read the comments underneath and all these people are commenting about their own stories of being caught. (laughs) Parents have got online and uh, after it's obviously just happened in a panic. Is that right? (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. So it's something that happens 
And it's it's like this urban myth as well. I think you hear a lot of parents talk about it and joke about it. So if it does happen, I think we have to acknowledge, first of all, that it's very embarrassing. Usually if it happens, it's usually in the middle of the night. So it's a matter of taking the kid back to the bed, back to bed, finding out what they want, because often they get up because they want to drink or they're scared or they need to go to the toilet and they walk in and they hear these noises or they see something. Because when you listen to sex, it sounds like someone's being beaten up. There's lots of moaning and grunting and funny noises. So for a kid hearing this, they often think that mum's being hurt or dad's being hurt or something's happening. So kids can often be scared from hearing their parents have sex. So it's a matter of taking them back to the bedroom, sorting them out, getting them back into bed and then... Going back to bed, just continue. (laughs) Continue with the action. Because it's usually the mum who gets up because dad's got a big erection. So this is if it's a mum and a dad. (laughs) And I'm making assumptions here. It could be two mums in bed or two dads. But usually (laughs) capable, we'll get out and sort it out. And then the next morning, you've got a couple of options. You know, you could ignore it. But it's ideal is about bringing it up again. So by the next morning, and on that blog post, I actually walked through how you can actually bring it up. So it's a matter of saying, oh, so you came into our bedroom last night. What did you want? Did you want a drink or something? And then you could sort of subtly suss out, well, you know, you saw dad and I doing something um, or dad and I were having sex. Did you notice? <laughs> That's what those yeah. noises were about. Yeah. And being upfront and yeah, actually, Without interrogating. Yeah, and just letting them know <laughs> that sex, you know, some kids will say, you know, I got scared. I heard these noises. I thought you were being hurt. What was happening? You know, some kids have 101 questions. Others are quite blasé. But it's just that great opportunity. And then also as a parent, you need to then think about, okay, how can I stop this from happening? One of my friends, you know, their kids walked into their bedroom. They were having afternoon sex. Their kids were older by then. But as I said to the kids, well, now you know why you knock before you come into our bedroom and wait for us to say yes. <laughs> but they now yeah. lock the door. Or get a hotel room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we need to see it as an opportunity. And are kids scarred for life? Well, no. It depends on how it's responded. If the child thinks that, what was happening in the bedroom was scary, they're more likely to remember it. And it's probably going to be a memory they'll have as an adult. But if you as a parent address their fears and say, well, no, dad wasn't hurting me, we're having sex. And sex, sometimes as part of having sex, you can make noises and those noises can sound like someone's being hurt, but we that wasn't what was happening. And that sort of thing then alleviates their fear. And then they're not going to be scarred for life. Mm, depends on how we handle it. Yeah. Yes, definitely how we handle it. So, yeah. Kath, if our early primary school age children come home and ask about something they've heard in the playground, example, you know, what is a blowy? How do we know what is an age appropriate response to the word blowy? <laughs> <laughs> I love because when we were kids growing up, if we'd known what a blowy or a blowy I don't even was, know now. <laughs> very I know. I still get them mixed up between blowjob and head job, you know, which is the mouth on the penis. Oh, well, so I say blowy when I want to blow dry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, or a blow fly in the house. There's a blow. (laughs) Yeah. So it's about saying, oh, what do you think a blowy is? And they might go, oh, it's a hairdryer. Or they might go, I don't know, but the kids were giggling and they said something about penises. This is the problem where age appropriate and parents get caught up on this is what's actually age appropriate? We hear it as one way, but our children may hear it as another way. So I think it's great how you go back in and ask a question. So when they ask you a question, you then answer with another question. I think it's quite clever. And you need to answer it because what if if you brush them off like if kids ask a question for a reason, mm. they want to know an answer. And that's something they've been thinking about. They've been thinking about it in the back of their mind and they want to know. So they've come to you and you want that because if they can ask you what a blowy is, they're going to come to you as a teenager with other questions. And this is why we need to set ourselves up as being approachable so they want to talk to us. But what we can do is find out, you know, is find out what they want to know and give them that answer. So you can give an age-appropriate response about anything. So I can talk to a three-year-old about what a blowjob is and give a very different answer to what I would say to a 15-year-old. So you might say it's a special kiss or it's where someone might put their penis on someone's, put their mouth on someone's penis or on their vulva, but you only do that when you're married or when you're grown up. So you throw in your values there. Yeah. So you can very simple answer because you don't want them then turning around to Google and Googling it because that's when they're going to then fall. Ask Siri, <laughs> what is blowy? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's funny because even as you were saying that, put, you know, putting, you know, your mouth on a penis or, the, you know, it's, you can imagine yourself oh. having that conversation with your child and it's hard not to feel a little edgy about it, Cass. I know. I was talking to a peer and she just, I've got a whole book that's on this where I've got answers to questions about sex. So I've got answers for three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. And she went over it and she's been working in the field for a while. But I had a question in there about, I had info in there about bestiality. And she said, why have you got bestiality in there? She said, you've even got it there five-year-olds I said because kids see porn and kids see animal porn and they go to school and they talk about someone having sex with a dog so we need to be able to talk about it so there's lots and lots and lots of different topics that we see as being inappropriate but we can talk about it in an age-appropriate way and what I often say to parents is it's not what we say but how we say it. Kids listen more to our tone and our body language and stuff. So talking about stuff in an everyday way just takes the shame away from stuff, but also wrapping up with our values and telling them what they can do with that information is important as well because that's a big fear parents have is that if you tell them what a blowy is, they'll then start doing it in the schoolyard. And as parents, yeah, constantly have these fears that, pop up it's like oh if I talk to my kid about porn does that mean he's then going to go look at it so we have to let them know that that's a grown-up thing it's something for adults it's not for kids quite frightening and it's very real Mm. how do we talk to our kids about porn sexually explicit material online how do we talk about it before they have seen it yeah porn is a real problem and as a parent myself it's, 
it's a conversation that we have to have because it's not a matter of if our kids see porn but when they see porn. So as parents, we need to, it's a bit like drugs. It's not whether our kids will be it's not if our kids will be offered drugs one day, it's when they'll be offered mm. drugs. So we need to have these conversations and be upfront because how can kids make smart decisions about whether they want to watch porn or not when, first of all, they don't know what it is and they yeah. don't know whether they should be watching it or not. So it's a bit like drugs, you know. If we don't talk to our kids about drugs, they can't make decisions about whether to say yes or no. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what we say, it's up to the kid to make that decision. So we need to be able to give them enough information to be able to decide whether that's something they want to do or not. And that's the approach that we need to take with porn is we need to have conversations with our kids so that, first of all, they know what it is and then they know what they should do when they see it. And the conversation, there's two conversations. There's the first conversation that you have before puberty and then there's a conversation that you have when they're going through puberty and older. And I break it into the two different ages because puberty is that age where sexual feelings start. It's where kids become more curious about sex because the body is so smart. The human body wants you to actually, as you go through puberty, they want you to become fertile so that you can breed and start the next generation. That's what puberty is about, keeping the human race going on and on. But the body, human body is smart. It knows that it needs to make us want to go out and do that. So it doesn't just give us the equipment. It gives us a reason, desire to go out and do it. So what happens during puberty is kids start to get sexual feelings where they start to think about their friends a little differently or they think about one of these people and they're more curious about the mechanics of sex. They want to know what goes where and how does it actually fit and what are you supposed to do? It's like learning a dance, I guess. So the conversations we have with the kids that have hit puberty and older are very much more about what porn is, what sex is about, media literacy that we talked about earlier. So if you watch a film or you watch something on TV, is that what really happens in real life? So the conversations then are sort of more sexual. But then we've got those earlier conversations and Young children, when they come across sexually explicit stuff, it's like them seeing a murder scene or seeing a dog getting, someone getting beaten up. It's quite traumatic. It's yeah. shocking. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's a, it's, a, it's a material that's upsetting. So porn gets put in with a lot of that stuff. There was a whole heap of YouTube videos where people were playing tricks on each other and filming it, but the tricks were quite horrific. They were like people were getting hurt and stuff and kids were watching this stuff and it was actually causing bad dreams and fears in a lot of kids as well. So porn comes in under that stuff that when they see it, it upsets them. I remember feeling like that, I think, like finding a, you know, a black label penthouse mm. when I was younger and the feelings that, that came up around that. And it's, yeah, when you can't Abuse. break that down. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't look right. It's not yeah. a, yeah. it's, you know, for some people they may feel aroused and for others they could be frightened. So yeah. 
Yes. And this is the thing with children is that we don't know what sort of young children pre-puberty, we don't know what sort of reaction they're going to get. Some kids will be blasé about it, others will be quite upsetting. So our conversations that we can have about porn when they're younger is we can talk to them about, and we don't even have to name it as porn, and we don't even have to have talked about sex, but we can talk to our kids about that when they're on YouTube, or hopefully on the YouTube kids one, and watching videos or cartoons is sometimes they might see something that's scary or someone might show them a picture or a video of something that's scary and if they see something they might be pictures or videos of people with no clothes on or with sexy underwear on and if they see this they need to put it down and come and tell us and then we as a parent can help them unpack what they saw so we can say well what did you see how did it make you feel how did it happen and let them talk about it which is a form of therapy helping them process what they saw and then we as a parent can then jump in and stop it from happening again yeah so important yeah very important also very important to identify when they are ready to talk about porn because otherwise, you know, it would just be encouraging them to go looking for it, right? So they get curious, I guess, mm. yeah. And this is where we need to talk about porn as being adult entertainment. Mm. It's for adults, it's not for kids. It's not the best way to learn about sex. That Sex is about, it's about a relationship as well. It's not like going to the hairdresser and hopping in the seat and getting your hair cut and coloured. There's usually a relationship mm. steps that happen before that. Yeah, yeah. So we talk about porn and let's talk about sexting. Times have changed. Is it as bad as parents think or is this the new normal for our kids? Yeah, I I said before about oral sex being the new first kiss. Sexting, our thoughts about sexting are very much changing where it's quite common for kids to take, they start off on Instagram taking, you know, provocative photos, posing and pouting, and then the pressure happens for sexual images to then be taken. There's some research that says this is a new way that kids court. This is part of mm. courting. This is part of the process. So there, there's some research that says it's it's part of how kids communicate nowadays because when we were growing up, if we liked someone, we passed them a note or we whispered it at school to them. Nowadays, kids have got phones and they're sending messages to each other. So relationships and courtings, dating, meeting someone is happening more in the online space. So sexting is becoming a lot more common. As parents, again, we don't really have a say in whether our kids do it or not. As parents, it's that conversation about talking to kids about the implications because if my son, if one of his friends at school who's 12 took a photo of their genitals and sent it to my son and then he sent it on to someone else, he's then passing on child pornography. So we need to talk about the legal implications of sexting when kids okay. are younger. And we also need to talk about the fact of what happens if they go to school. They might have a special friend and they send a photo to that friend, but then that friend, someone takes their phone and gets a copy of that photo. It's so possible. And I think it comes back to that whole consent thing again, doesn't it, Kath? It's just really drilling down and unpacking consent and what that looks yeah. like in all areas of what of the topics we're talking about. Definitely. So... 
We've got another listener's question, Kath, on teenage contraception. So how do we make sure our kids are safe without promoting sex? Oh, that's a tricky one because I think it's about, first of all, letting kids know that there are ways to prevent pregnancy, that it is possible to have sex without a baby happening. So contraception prevents pregnancy, but they also need to look at preventing infections as well. So it's about those many conversations. Some faiths don't believe, some faiths and religions aren't comfortable with contraception. So you need to be able to talk about that as well as to what your church promotes or what your cultural beliefs are. So it's just, I guess, about making sure that they know they exist and then talking about the fact that contraception, there's other conversations that have to happen. It's also conversations about knowing when you're ready for sex as well. Talking about these things openly means that by the time they're ready to be sexually active, hopefully you've had enough conversations that they can make the right decision All the research says that the kids that have sex young are the kids that don't have conversations with their parents. So the more conversations that you can have about contraception, safe sex, making a decision means that your child is going to be, you know, they're going to be more likely to be 17 or 18, maybe 19, 20. They're going to put off sex until they're ready. So conversations empower kids. They don't give them permission. They give them the knowledge. Correct, yes. And so, Kath, let's talk about grooming. So how do we warn our kids about sexual predators? What are ways children are groomed? Yes, online. Um, Mm. Online is the biggest thing. So what used to happen when we were kids was that sexual grooming would happen face-to-face. So it would be a relationship with another adult and they might slowly show you some pornography or buy you special gifts and grooming would happen that way and they'd make you feel special and they would test you to make sure you would keep secrets, that sort of thing. What happens now that face-to-face grooming often isn't from an adult. They now say that your child is more at risk of the teenage boy next door than of the dirty old man on the corner Mm. because teenagers are being exposed to porn and sometimes it's porn they've been watching for a while and they don't understand what they're seeing and they will then act out what they saw with the four-year-old next door. Lots and lots of cases of this, and um, I do training on this quite regularly because I find it fascinating how it's changing and about the risks that children um, face. And I hear from a lot of parents, we hear more and more stories of kids being touched at school and on play dates by other children. So grooming it happens, but it's that whole conversations about I'm the boss of my body, um, and I have a say. Yeah. Who t- So we need to have conversations with kids from a young age about face-to-face grooming and face-to-face sexual touch about if someone touches your penis, that's not okay and you shouldn't be touching someone else's. And then we also need to talk to them about online as well, about online safety, about, you know, don't just let your kids sign up for any games. You need to actually get in and check out that game yourself. Common Sense Media is an American website and they are very up to date as to the latest games. I often would, if my kids would want something, I would go and check it out on that first and they would tell you what the risks were. It was a quicker and easier way. 
So you need to go in and find out if there's a chat. And if there is a chat, it's about talking to your kid and saying, well, you don't call yourself by your real name. You don't tell people where you live. You don't take photos. You don't go into private rooms. You don't share your passwords. So it's about lots of conversations about online safety in general. Yeah, 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 agree with that. I think the key is, again, like what you said, equipping our children, we're talking about it, giving them as much as knowledge as possible so they can grow up knowing what are the choices are and take fully uh, accountability on their and choices. And also, Rani, allowing that space for them to be able to ask questions yeah. freely yeah. without feeling uncomfortable. Having that safe, safe space at home for mm. us, right? One last question, Kath. I'm Indonesian. I lived in Singapore 15 years and just moved to Australia. So clearly there are uh, differences in religious and cultural beliefs. So I want to know how do we talk about sex when our religious and cultural beliefs promote abstinence? I'm so glad you've asked that question because it is so important and it's values. It's like if you, if your culture and beliefs are about abstinence, about waiting until kids are married to be sexually active, you need to mm-hmm. tell kids this. A lot of parents don't share their values or they'll say, you know, sex doesn't happen until you get married. But kids, it needs to be many conversations. It needs to not just be one. And we need to constantly be sharing our values and beliefs. So it's not just about the fact that you believe in abstinence, but it's about why you believe in abstinence. Once kids have the understanding about the why, I think it can, it's easier for them to understand. At the end of the day, our values are very personal. So we all have very different values. So I'm, I have six brothers and sisters. We were all brought up the exact same way. And our values about different things are all completely different despite the fact that we all had the same childhood and the same messages. So our values are very much what we pick and choose. Now, research says that kids want to hear from parents the stories about their own growing up and their own first relationships and how hard, hard making decisions were. So if as parents, if we can talk about all those things and wrap our values in and talk about our beliefs about God, it can help with kids to shape their own values. Because at the end of the day, if we're not talking, where are they going to get their values from? Music? Correct. Yeah. yeah. What happens in the schoolyard, which often isn't what really happens, it's hyperinflated talk, hyped up talk. So by having these conversations, we've got a better chance that our kids will follow our beliefs. But we also need to be open-minded as well because what can often happen with religious values is that what happens if your child is same-sex attracted? How does your church view homosexuality? And as parents, we need to somehow walk that fine line between having our beliefs but still loving our children and keeping the door open so that they can come and talk to us. Yeah, But I think the key is open conversation. If conversations keep happening where you talk about everything, and this is what I love about sex education. When I first started, I thought it was about talking to our kids about sex. And then I realized 
It actually, yeah, it is that, but it's more than that. It's actually about having a conversation where you talk about anything and everything. And I know myself that when I grew up, I wasn't very close with my parents as a teenager and I didn't have someone to turn to and to ask questions. But I know that with my kids, because we're talking about stuff, we're still talking about it when they're teenagers and there's a closeness. So sex education and talking openly about these things gives you a closer, more connected relationship with your kids. And I think that's the key. And I think that I'd love to do some research on this, but I'm sure that if you looked at two pockets, so if you looked at people who shared their values and the ones that didn't, the ones that shared their values, I can guarantee that their kids were more likely to have similar values than the ones who didn't share them. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot to be said for values and, yeah. and I like it how you, you bring that to the table, Kath, especially creating that awareness for our kids to actually understand what their values are. I mean, yeah. if somebody had asked me that at 15, I'd be like, well, what's a value? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so it's really important to have that, I mean, as an adult. your identity. Absolutely. Beliefs, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, Kath Hackinson, thank you so much for joining us and helping educate us about sex education. Parents, we strongly encourage that we should take charge, getting the knowledge, being comfortable, explaining to our children anything that they need to know about sex education, rather than having our children retrieving that information from their peers or internet or movies, etc. So we have to take charge, parents. Kath have amazing resources for parents at her website, sexandrescue.com. There is great articles, tips, books, videos, and free online courses for us parents on sex education and puberty. So let's go there, guys. Let's sign up. Oh, I want to be your client. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kath. Thank you, Kath. Thank you. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please let others know by sharing and rating us wherever you listen to your podcast. And we'd love to hear from you. If you would like to get in touch with a question for us to discuss in a future episode, please send us an email or send us a voice memo to hello at findingpeaceinparenting.com. Bye. Bye.